Hello and welcome back to another one of our slightly shorter but hopefully equally meaningful uh, discussions. Uh, in fact, even as I say that, it's possible the shorter discussions may be more meaningful. I, I hope not, but I hope this will be meaningful anyway. Um, it's the first discussion in the next quarter, which is on Hebrews. Uh, we've made an executive decision. We think that the, uh, the coincidence of there being exactly 13 chapters in the book of Hebrews demands that we spend one week on each chapter. This will allow us to address some of the themes in the lesson quarterly, but the uh, lesson quarterly uh, is less than systematic in its treatment of the book, which is something we notice in Deuteronomy also. So I, I don't know what this says about the genre of lesson quarterlies. And, and every quarter previously. But we, we will go through <laughs> the book chapter by chapter. And so today we're going to talk about Hebrews 1. My name's Cameron. So glad you can join us. And Ken here, looking forward to this discussion. Luke, likewise. And I'm Lachlan. Okay, so Hebrews 1, and the the theme of the lesson is that uh, Hebrews is a book written for a Jewish audience, but it's also written to us. And the thought that we are meant to contemplate is that we are an, an intended audience. I was going to say the intended audience. We're one of the intended audiences of this book. And I am not convinced. The reason I'm not convinced is um, the author goes out of their way to establish very Jewish credentials in this opening chapter. Um, he's obviously writing to a people with centuries and centuries and centuries of tradition. We talked about this in our quarter on Deuteronomy when we looked at um, how it played out in the nation's history. And they've got all this history of centuries and centuries of, of being God's people. And then there, here's some troublesome people who are, who are Jews themselves going around saying that something new has begun, some new some new paradigm shifts occurred and um and this is causing some consternation and there's uh, this is written to some jewish believers um and it's written i think isn't it to the hebrew church jewish jewish believers in rome is that is that in the book that's a great question uh, <laughs> i was hoping you'd feel that look uh, I don't okay i've vague memory that it's written to the <laughs> jewish believers in rome but uh, Quite possibly. While while you're looking that up, I was just looking at the very handy BibleGateway.com provides all your footnotes um, for all of the references yeah. that you're talking about, Cam. Psalms, Second Samuel, First Chronicles, Deuteronomy, Psalm, 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 Psalms. Yeah. So this so is he's really. Yeah, this is the author is really laying out his bona fide Jewish credentials. It, it would be like um, an Adventist preacher. If they were concerned that the congregation were not thinking them to be Adventist enough, might might throw a few extra Ellen White quotes in, and point out how they're the pastor son of three generations of pastors. And... Yeah, yeah, possibly. And look, let's let's not judge them too harshly for that. No, I have to admit that when I was working for Adra. Uh, overseas, as it were, I did occasionally refer to my missionary grandparents for a similar reason. Yeah, yeah, and and uh, it's a very legitimate thing to do if you're if you're writing a book to a particular audience is to write in a way that that resonates with them, to write in a way that draws on the same cultural idiom and the same shared knowledge. In this case, of religious texts, um, does it though suggest that the book is not 
so much written to us, even if it is provided for our benefit and recorded for our benefit and there's a lot to learn from it, I, I would hesitate to identify too closely with the original in, intended audience. I think it's, it's interesting, and I would make this point up the front, based on our previous seasons of podcast reading, we have very often pulled in a lot of knowledge um, from 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 things that we've read and, and, and authors that we admire and also from from close friends and relatives who know a lot on these topics. We've pulled in a lot of historical context. And my personal experience with that is that my appreciation and my understanding and my my joy of reading the Bible has always been increased by having the historical context of what I'm reading. Mm. And knowing more about that, as well as reading the text. Yeah, I can't help but thinking of the, um, is it the the road to Emmaus? There's the two discouraged um, followers of Jesus who uh, are grappling with his death and the feeling that everything that they thought made sense doesn't anymore. And the traveler with them, reading from the law and the prophets, pieces it all back together and of course that traveler is jesus himself resurrected and it's one of the appearances that he makes i kind of feel that a little bit when when i look at the book of hebrews because it seems to be taking things apart in some sense and putting them back together again in a way that in the light of jesus in the light of christ you know in a way that makes them even more powerful useful profound and meaningful than they were like in the in the original sort of putting together, like the transformer toys, like that we used to have in primary school, that that looked like, like a, simply like a car, and then you transform them, and they become they're the same things, yeah. but they're just completely different. <laughs> and there, are, yeah. there are some things that are completely different about this paradigm that we we in our previous uh, discussion in Deuteronomy saw a huge emphasis on there being only one God. And when you go into the promised land, only worship him in one place. Don't have lots of temples because there's only one God. Don't be like the neighboring nations, etc., etc. There's only one, there's only one, there's only one. And right up front in the book of Hebrews, um, the author is saying, who is the author, by the way, of the book of Hebrews? To my knowledge, it's one of those New Testament books with, um, with no clear authorship. I think traditionally it's probably interpreted as being uh, Paul because so much of the New Testament is. The book of Hebrews is very different. It, it, like the book of Romans, is much less like an um, like a letter, a correspondence from, from a person. It's much more like a sermon. So in my mind, at least, Hebrews and Romans stand out in the New Testament as, as being these sustained, like an essay, uh, a sort of sustained development. And I think that's one other reason why I think it's nice for us to be stepping through it chapter by chapter rather than just um, grabbing scattered yeah. verses here and there to explore some themes. Because I really do think the book of Hebrews has that kind of structure of, of building a coherent argument. Well, one of the arguments that he's saying is, all right, so we have this long tradition that there's only one God. Uh, but, hey, look at all these clues that suggest something a little bit different. Because he's claiming in verse 2, um, In these last days God has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, by whom he also made the universe. 
that that's fairly heretical statement. Mm. Um, um, so he's not shying not shying yeah. away from the difficult truth. And then then he says, all right, well, you know, is there any whisper of this in our in our sacred texts? Well, what about all these texts here that seem to point towards? Yeah. They seem to point towards yeah. something a bit more. Uh, I'd just like to read those first three verses. I actually think those first three verses are one of the most elegant and succinct descriptions of the way that that our that Christ changes everything, right? So long ago, God spoke to our ancestors in many and various ways by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by a son whom he appointed heir of all things through whom he also created the world's. He is the reflection of God's glory and the exact imprint of God's very being, and he sustains all things by his powerful word. You need to keep going. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven, so he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have become your father, or again I will be his father and he will be my son. And again... When God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, let all angels, all God's angels worship him. Uh, but about the son, I'm skipping verse 7, go to verse 8. Uh, but about the son, he says, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. So uh, it's, it's, uh, there are some who say there are seven uh, characteristics of the son uh, spoken about here. Um, I'm more inclined to think that there are nine um, as follows. One, he appointed heir of all things. Um, Two, he made the universe or through whom God made the universe. Three, the radiance of God's glory. Four, the exact representation of his being. Five, sustaining all things by his powerful word. Six, provided purification for sins. Seven, sat down at the right hand of majesty in heaven. Eight is as much superior to the angels as the name he inherited is superior to theirs. And nine, and this is the starting point in any event, you are my son and I am your father. That is what God says. The the statements from the Old Testament say, let all God's angels worship him, which is in a sense um, a repeat of the eighth one, that is as superior to angels as the name he inherited. And uh, about the son, he says, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A couple of interesting things about that. That's equivalent to verse uh, to the seventh one, where he sat down at the right hand of majesty in heaven. Um, and it is also a direct reference to the divinity, I think, uh, of the son. Um, because about the son, God says, your throne, O God, will last forever. Uh, mm. So there's, there's a few little interesting... Well, there's quite a number of qualities of the sun uh, that are spoken about there. Mm. It's a fairly, I think, powerful introduction. You know, if if you are to read this perhaps as an essay, as a sermon, the the author is not beating about the bush. They're, they're launching right into it. Yeah, look, they? they really are. And, and part of it is, if you think about it, um, uh, we think of angels as beings who are superior. Uh, and this is very clearly a, uh, a statement that the Son is superior to beings who are superior to us. 
Um, uh, and, mm. and it's a theme that comes out right through uh, Hebrews. If you go over to Hebrews chapter 3, uh, he starts saying, well, not only is he greater than the angels, he's greater than Moses. Um, and, uh, mm. and then uh, you go over to chapter 4 and uh, 5, uh, not only is he greater than Moses, he's greater than the high priest. Um, even greater than Melchizedek, yeah. the high priest. Indeed, he's chapter eight. He's the high priest of a new covenant. Um, so he he is the bee's knees. Hmm. Hmm. Look, I'd like to. I, that's so good, Ken. And I think we're going to have real opportunities in coming weeks to explore some of those chapters. And I'm looking forward to it. But I'd like to throw a spanner in the works here because I can't help but feeling. And Cam, this is getting back to what you were saying. Are we? How much do we identify with the this original audience, the original recipients of Hebrews? Um, I'd like to just preface what I'm about to say by saying that I think we we can identify by uh, by being as besotted with and as as one-eyed about Jesus as the author of Hebrews is, and and as the author is exhorting the audience to be. I think that that's a message that's eternally relevant to us, but. I wonder if sometimes in our less than shining moments, communally, corporately as Adventist Christians, we've accidentally reversed verse 1 and 2. Long ago, God spoke to our ancestors in many various ways by the prophets and through his son. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by a prophet whom he appointed <laughs> I, I see what you're getting at, Locke. Um, I, I, I want to make that point in uh, response to your spanner um, that we have talked on this podcast previously about how, well, we've talked specifically about how prophecy can have dual meanings. It can be mm. very sophisticated. It can have one meaning for its audience in the day at the moment, and it can have a completely different meaning in the longer frame. And I think that applies not only to prophecy, but basically to anything written in the Bible. So when we say, are we the intended audience of Hebrews, a possible answer, and I'm not necessarily saying this is 100% correct, but a possible answer is to say, yes, we are the intended audience, but not in the same way that the people it was written to originally are the intended audience. It has a different meaning for them as it has for us. But both meanings are intended. I really like that, and I wonder whether or not that fits in a little bit with this phrase in verse 1 at many times and in various ways. So God spoke <laughs> through to our forefathers through the prophets. So often I feel that what we try and do is to look for a consistent theme. And look, human beings are pattern-seeking creatures. Um, uh, but we, we, we look for this. And, and I wonder whether or not uh, sometimes uh, denominationally we're tempted to say... Uh, even if we accept that it was God who spoke through the prophets in the past. Um, he spoke to the prophets in the past and he had one message and that message has not changed yeah. throughout history. It's remained the same and it always will be and it always has been and that's what it is and don't you dare depart from that because uh, otherwise you'll be falling into serious error that puts your eternal destiny at risk. Um, that doesn't seem to me to be what the author was saying in verse one. <laughs> yeah, no, I like that, Ken. Um, hmm. Yeah, and many, many times, and in various ways, I'm, I'm in, inclined to think um, 
a little humorously of some of the various ways that God spoke through his prophets. You know, go and marry a prostitute. Go and lie on your side. And cook, uh, go, <laughs> cook food with your poo. Yeah. As for, yeah, for fire yeah. fuel. Um, yeah. It, there was a pretty wide diversity of ways, um, especially through the prophets. There was. Go, go put a yoke around your neck and walk around town. Um, mm. There's There are a lot of ways. Uh, and that's encouraging, I think. It, certainly God's quite creative and we're not always, we don't always devote as much creative energy into evangelism as I think we we should, even when we do devote lots of energy. We probably, I would be guilty of this perhaps more so than anyone else and not devoting enough energy full stop. But certainly thinking of creative ways that we we ought also look, if God, if God uses, this is what I'm trying to say, if God uses multiple ways, many ways and means, then we ought also look for multiple ways and means um, wherever wherever possible in order to reach the maximum number of people. Um, I few two things I want to say. One is I don't approve of the author's use of the Old Testament. I think that the quotes are very oblique. If if you go back and have a look at one of them, which is the link to Deuteronomy, because we've just finished a discussion on Deuteronomy, I thought it would be interesting. The one about everyone worshipping the sun, um, is so oblique. It's so incredibly oblique. And in fact, in in the Bible I'm reading, it says that you have to see the Dead Sea Scrolls or Septuagint versions for it to, for the reference to sort of make sense. Because there's a, okay. there's a phrase, it's, they've, they're very oblique. I'll read you what it is in, in Deuteronomy 32, 43, which is one of the verses quoted. Uh, rejoice you nations with his people for he will avenge the blood of his servants and he will take vengeance on his enemies and make atonement for his land and people and that that is quoted uh, in this way in Hebrews which is in verse 6 and again when God brings his firstborn into the world he says let all God's angels worship him well it's not even a quote mm. Yeah. It's not. It's not a quote. It's more of a paraphrase. It's, it's a paraphrase. Yeah. So when I say I don't approve, uh, what I mean is um, the the author here is not attempting exegesis. He's he's, mm. he's not trying to explain mm. what the Old Testament passages meant in their context in the original day. He is saying, "Hey, I can make." Well, I, I think it may be more than just a personal statement of credentials. I think he may also be saying the really crazy sounding stuff I'm about to tell you does all come out of our religion. It's mm. not an import. Yeah. It is from Jewish tradition. But the, the verses he quotes are, are quoted. Um, he's not saying he's not saying necessarily that the verses in their original context say what I am claiming they say. He's saying, in, no. in the light of what's happened, we can look back and retrospectively. Well, yes. do we not do the same thing well, with uh, our interpretation of prophecy as a Seventh-day Adventist tradition? Well, this is my second point. We say, well, retrospectively, we look back at Daniel yeah. and say, oh, he meant this, this, and well, we refer to all these historic events. Well, I would say, Luke, that my experience of Hebrews growing up in an Adventist church is that the book is exclusively used in that way. Um and that the book is used more often to justify our existence as a denomination than it is to celebrate Christ. Mm. And what chapter one seems to be saying, I, I'm just astonished that I've never really, I must have read it at some point. I've never heard a sermon on 
on this. And Ken, your your exploration of the themes of how Christ is shown to be the fulfillment, mm. not just the fulfillment, but the more excellent, mm. the, the real thing mm. of, of all I of these old structures really good point. Is, is such a, a wonderful really point. point. Yes, that I want to jump in on, Cam, because I think it answers your concerns with that, you know, sort of way of reading the book. These verses, as you say, not chosen to interpret their meaning through historical context, may be more chosen for their thematic connections. Yeah. As Ken so beautifully illustrated, it is a theme, and it is precisely themes about the character and nature of the Son of God. Mm. So it's very much focused thematically on celebrating Christ in contrast to perhaps an interpretation that's about being having a a, a doctrinal justification yeah. for x y or z so i think there's something interesting cam it could just be that the author by being able to um fluently string together so many references in such a short passage to various parts of the old testament the author could simply be making the point i'm about i'm saying something pretty dramatic here and i'm saying it as someone who is well familiar with our shared heritage and and they're basically inviting they're sort of saying look i know all the verses you know all the verses we know, we know all the verses but something different is here something has changed i want to tell you about what's changed but but at the very start, I'm just going to re- remind you that that I'm not I'm not saying all this stuff that's wildly different because I'm a wildly different person. I I am from the same place as you. Um, I was trying to think of a contemporary example and I couldn't really. But it's a bit like it's a bit like some of the the quite well done um, you know Aussie Bible translations that that are, you know Jesus's parables translated into quite Australian sort of. Sort scenarios. of stories, scenarios, slang, jargon. Um, the 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 point of that is, for an Australian, when you read it, you think you feel this comfort, this sort of oh wow, you know, whoever that person was who wrote that is, mm. I identify mm. uh, with them. That 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 um, the characteristics of the author have been used to suggest that perhaps Barnabas was the uh, author. Uh, indeed, most people, most scholars, I think these oh. days, think that it was unlikely to have been Paul. Um, uh, and uh, Tertullian said, um, uh, referred to it as the Epistle to the Hebrews under the name of Barnabas. Um, uh, so, uh, hmm. and 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 the characteristics that Barnabas had uh, were that he was a uh, an intellectual Hebrew uh, from the tribe of Levi, uh, the priestly tribe of Levi, uh, and clearly well versed in the Old Testament. Um, so and and a close friend of Paul, and we see some common themes uh, with Paul um, uh, here um, that that might have been picked up by somebody such as Barnabas. And and so, and another suggestion is that it might have been Apollos, um, who was the uh, who was the yeah. author of Hebrews. Um, but some of those themes are are, are really interesting. Uh, through whom he made the universe, and through sustaining all things by mm. his powerful word. Uh, and and you can think of uh, some of Paul's uh, references to Christ, uh, in whom we live and move and have our being, um, uh, who sustains mm-hmm. all it things. It actually reminds me of it reminds me of of some of the Psalms that talk about sort of creation as a continuous, renewing mm. daily act. Mm. Yeah. Um, but what I was going to uh, 
say is, and this is probably a question for Clancy more than any of us, but is it a thing, and I feel like we've seen this in other places, to quote, I feel like we've seen Jesus do this, just quote scripture, not in a way that says, I am telling you the literal meaning of this scripture, but for sort of thematic or artistic purpose to to enrich the message being communicated without any sort of attempt to say, I'm saying what mm. these words mean. Mm. Because again, that I'm saying what these words mean. I'm I'm interpreting these words with a new and better and more correct meaning is a very modern Western I went to school for thirteen years way of thinking that there's a correct meaning. I'm not sure that the that the Hebrew tradition, its authors and its listeners, necessarily thought that way about this is the right meaning and that's the wrong meaning. So I'm just I'm I'm wondering if that's because if, yeah. if, if 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 it is, you know, we could be getting things very wrong if we go around looking for the correct meaning in in uh, passages where scripture is quoted for completely different purpose than saying the correct meaning. So you see what I mean? Yeah, we'll have to defer to the experts. But Luke, I, th- I understand that what you're hypothesizing is exactly correct. I, I think that the um, it's either the Midrash or the Talmud, which are sort of more a collection of, of comments or or they're, they're extra biblical so there's the torah which is which is our 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 books of the law essentially we got them in the bible the midrash i think is more the kind of biblical exegesis or or reinterpretation using it to sort of reinterpret itself and almost like rhapsodizing upon the biblical text that we probably would critique exactly like you have cam that's not a solid exegesis, but it's but it's an artistic mode of expressing. It's almost like a kind of poetry where you're where you're playing the poetry game, and your raw material is the the collection of the scriptures, and you're you're exploring and developing and playing with themes. So, um, it's also not something that is restricted to um, the Israelites. So. The, the Greek myths uh, and legends uh, and Greek writings are still referred to by people as really good examples of the thing they want to say best. Mm. Um, and uh, Even when they're used in a completely was, different context to their original... Completely and, different And for a context. completely different purpose to their original yeah. uh, meaning yeah. and intention. Yeah, mm. and, and the same is true for... Um, any stories that are held that is sufficiently widely, and any story that is held that that it has a, become part of the collective cultural consciousness. Um, so if yeah. I said to you, if I said to you that um, uh, when it comes to technology in schools, the emperor isn't wearing any clothes, <laughs> you've all you've all got a picture in your mind of what that means. The context of technology in schools is so far away from. Hans yeah. Christian Anderson or the Grimm brothers, whoever wrote that one, I think it's Hans Christian Anderson. So I guess then our challenge is uh, a, a couple, uh, threefold. Our challenge is to uh, find out uh, what this book meant to its original audience. I think we should pay attention to that, and we should recognise that that they and we are not in the same situation. 
uh, and we should find try as much as possible to do honest exegesis on the book of Hebrews and see what it meant to the people who heard it. Uh, we should also recognize that uh, God preserved this book for a reason and that um, we don't have to restrict ourselves, Luke, to just one intended uh, meaning. I like that a lot, that there may be there may be intended meanings, meanings in there for us which were intended, uh, even if they're not the same as the original. Uh, and the third is to look wherever we can in this book for Christ and what it tells us about him. Amen. And to arrive at 1844. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we're we're going to pull that out in the edit. But, um... <laughs> I dare you to keep it in. <laughs> I'll, wrap, I'll wrap it up. Go on. Be courageous. <laughs> Thank you, everyone, for listening to this episode. And um, next week's will also be a, a slightly shorter episode as we enjoy our holiday season and time off. We hope that you all have a safe and happy holidays and uh, please join us again next week.